0: Vanit Leia and Rabbi David Walkenfeld. Shalom and welcome to the Straw Hat. We are the official podcast of Anche Shalom Bene Israel Congregation, an Orthodox synagogue in the beautiful Lakeview neighborhood of Chicago, Illinois. In this week's episode, we have a section on Parashat. Vayigash, with a fascinating 21st century interpretation put forward by Rabbi Yoel ben Nun, who we will be talking about as well and his whole school of Tanakh interpretation. And then we will be talking a little bit about Tractate Nida, which we are finishing up in the Daf Yomi cycle. Um, and lastly, this episode rounds out with an interview with Anshe Shalom's very own Gabai, Dr. Josh Ehrlich.
1: Parashat Vayigash contains a very dramatic scene where after chapters of uh, playing with his brothers, it seems, and and, uh, hiding his identity, Yosef finally comes out and shares who he is and shares his identity with his brothers who are shocked and surprised uh, to discover that this Egyptian whom they were negotiating with and pleading with is none other than their brother Yosef.
0: And it's kind of amazing just that in kind of in my lifetime, a new shot reading of that moment really has kind of transformed the way that people read the Torah, which is until Rav Yor Ben-Nun came along and we'll introduce him and talk about him in a second um no one no one kind of entertained the idea that that yosef or no one. I mean, I can't say no one for sure. There's been a lot of Jews who've read the Parsha over time, but no one in writing kind of entertained the idea that Yosef just assumed that he had been kicked out of his family and that they didn't want him back. They didn't call. They didn't write. Um, and uh, and and it's just like it's one of those amazing things where you think, wow, like this text, like what more could possibly be said about it? And then and then someone comes along, you know, in the tw- in the 21st century, and says, you know, the way to read this is that. Yosef assumed that they weren't interested.
1: So let's 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 gather some of the evidence that Ravio uses to promote this this case. We'll say a little bit of Raviol Benun as well, and also I think the movement that he is champion. Yeah, I think one of the founding members of and exe- still exemplary member of this in this new movement of turn to So first of all, what so, some evidence. Um, Yosef is sent to his brothers by his father, right? Mm -hmm. His father sends him on this mission, and as soon as he gets there, the brothers grab him and throw him in a pit. So as far as Yosef knows, maybe this was part of the father's plan. After all, every other generation of his family, there has been a rejected child. And so – uh, Yosef assumes that it's him, after all, right? He and is,
0: they're going in kind of the right direction, right? The same way that like Hagar and Ishmael kind of go to go into the desert towards Egypt, whatever. Like, like he's kind of sent off in that direction as well.
1: Yeah, yeah, and, uh, and and so that that's from Yosef's perspective why he thinks he might have been this might have been his father might have been in on the plan, uh, and the the other I think piece of evidence is that the moment when. Yosef reveals himself after lots and lots of back and forth and Shimon is in prison and then Benyamin in prison, the whole back and forth. The piece of information that the brothers had not shared, divulged yet in their dialogue with this Egyptian man is the fact that there was another brother – who was lost, and that their father mourns him and doesn't realize, you know, what what happened. Right. It wasn't even in the plan. And as soon as Yehuda mentions that fact, Yosef immediately, instantly says, I, "I am Yosef, your brother, and he's my father." Right. So, so that that also, I think, is a really powerful piece of evidence uh, supporting. Uh, and this that theory. possibly
0: Yosef wasn't meaning. Like, we usually read it that Yosef was just planning, he he was testing them, but that there was a test that they could pass. But with this read, it actually maybe wasn't a test that they... I mean, if he's assuming my father doesn't care, and I'm not interested in telling them who I am, unless I know that I haven't been kicked out, because, you know, whatever, like, he has a whole life there now, why why bother? Um, Maybe he's just toying with them, and it's actually not a test that they can pass unless unless Yaakov is on board which Yosef isn't assuming is a remote possibility.
1: Right so Yosef is doing that he's not he's not when he's um you know testing them to see how much they care about Benjamin will they you know protect him the way they didn't protect him the you know he's not testing them according to this read he's 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 protecting Benjamin he's like oh like right. me and Benjamin we're the we're the children of the rejected wife and so we're the ones who uh so he's trying to like he's, he's not not about a test of the brothers it's about protecting Benjamin and, and getting him uh to be with him like we're you know we're the rejected mm-hmm. kids Let, let's be together at least uh and and that that's what his plan was and then all of a sudden the mission changes uh, once he gets that really really crucial piece of information yeah so i guess earlier understanding when bond famously says no it's about um he's trying to uh, make his dream a reality so he has this vision of what's supposed to happen and so he's trying to orchestrate things to make that happen i i, I think that sort of just eggs the question of uh, like what why why, why? yeah <laughs> right exactly exactly uh, so this is not this is not the only way to read the story. I don't want to you know it's and there are even you know and there are students and colleagues of Ravi Albin who disagree. disagree and argue. But I think it's a wonderful example of uh, in recent memory somebody looking at the same story that's been studied for thousands of years and, and offering a new interpretation that is quite compelling. And I really some years I I've been uh, very, very taken by this 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 uh, shot of Real Benun. The Rashbam, one of the great medieval pashim, mm-hmm. has this phrase uh, where he talks about the Shatim uh, il Hashim il right? the, the daily um, discovery of new Shatim, new uh, plain sense ways, uh, nice. readings of, of the Torah. And this is a great example. There's really been a flourishing of Shatim in. In the last uh, generation, it's been described as the the new school of shot, mm-hmm. uh, right? In the Middle Ages, there was for several generations in Northern France uh, this this flourishing of a shot type of. And, also, clearly, and, but, and, uh, and
0: what are they fighting against? Meaning, so what? What Rashi does is right. We, we, uh, in day school, right. they they always teach right that Rashi is the shot, but really a, a, a huge portion of Rashi is work is taking midrashim from. Midrash Rabbah and putting them into the text and and, and sometimes sometimes he'll say you know why is this word here whatever I mean there's always a what's my Rashi 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 also I
1: want to say I think Rashi also Rashi says explicitly about himself so he also right. saw himself as a Pashtun
0: who then draws very heavily on the Masoret. And but on he the, says he says that he says the midrashim, midrashim,
1: midrashim that he selects are those that are miyeshvet mm-hmm. mikra. He says so he only selects those midrashim that he thinks are consistent with. Wait, his understanding of Shutosh, but it's a generation like one. He's like, right. he's like he's shot 1.0. 1. One, oh.
0: And he's kind of a bridge between the Torah means what the Midrash says it Correct. means to, well, the Torah means what this Midrash Correct. says it means. Correct. Whereas Rush Bomb says, no, no no, the Torah means what the Torah means. And he describes having a conversation with his grandfather, Rashi, where Rashi said, Yes, if only I had time in my life to rewrite my whole my my I would, whole I would commentary, it, yes. <laughs> I would I would do I would do what you're doing and, and write it according to the to the new Pshatim, right? Because which means right like Rashi is tapping into like old Pshatim maybe or something like that.
1: I think and that if you embrace a Pshat method of understanding sukkim, a plain sense meaning that's that's not dependent on are uh, based on older interpretations, the classic music regime, et cetera, uh, then of, of course they'll come up with new things because it's, it's not a fixed corpus of Options. of, of uh, canonical material, that source material that you're pulling from, and the ones you think are best. It's actually, let me look at this with fresh eyes and mm-hmm. see what makes the most sense to me. So there's that medieval school upshot, and they, you know, the... the the ones who were in Spain and you know who knew Arabic, they drew upon Semitic grammar. philology and grammar. Like Ibn Ezra is one of them. And in northern France, they didn't know Arabic or grammar, but they sort of intuitively understood a lot about grammar. And they had a set, you know, and they also in northern France they had a lot of, they were you know um, talking about sukim with Christians. And so there was a real context of what does this verse really mean? Okay, and so mm. that maybe also fueled this medieval. Uh, school of pshat, but in the 20th century you have the new school of pshat is drawing on knowledge of Ugaritic and, and literary analysis and, and all sorts of other um, tools that they didn't have in the Middle Ages, but also with that same endeavor of like, like let's try to understand what the term means, distinct from um, how we live, like the normative meaning of sukkim which is, for Orthodox Jews, determined once and forever by the classic Midrashim of Chazal, uh, right, so whatever, the Torah says, uh, don't boil a kid mother's milk three times, that means definitively now and forever, uh, that means you can't uh, cook or eat or derive benefit from any dairy or meat that have been cooked together. That's 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 the lucky meaning, that's the normative meaning of those three psukim, but the pshat could be I don't know, maybe we'll discover some Ugaritic text that, dis- that sheds light on on those verses. Or maybe uh, someone will discover some literary analysis of the structure of um, Sefer shmot where it'll make sense in a new way, in a new light, right? And, that, and, you, so.
0: and that's part of what's so amazing about the Torah. I Meaning if the Torah were this kind of, like, fixed thing that all you had to do in order to understand it was learn the way it's always been understood, well, then, like— Reading it every year would be kind of boring, but the fact that the Torah every year could be totally understood afresh and in every generation, you can find new things that aren't just kind of, well, what's culturally exciting now? Let me read that into the Torah, which is, of course, a very fun project that (laughs) I love, but also literally like, what does the Torah mean? And that you can keep asking that question for thousands of years and coming up with new answers Based on new tools or just new brains thinking about it in the world and in different kinds of communities, I think is really just astounding and exciting. So let's
1: say more about this this new school of thought. been known is one of I think the founding members of this new school of shot. It was a group of I think it grew really out of Yeshivat um, uh, Har in the early in the in the seventies. Uh, students of Rav Amital and of Lichtenstein who were. Um, I just reading an article uh, that Lichtenstein gave a speech when he was still at Stern College, kind of laying out a program for like 20th century Orthodox Bible scholarship, in which he encouraged the use of literary analysis for Torah scholarship by Orthodox mm-hmm. Jews. And then he moved to Israel and joined the the leadership of Yishuv Sion, and then and then he attracted a group of students like Riviel Nun and like Riv Meidan. And then the establishment of Herzog College, which has a major Tanakh uh, department, mm. and uh, and sponsors uh, Yimei Yun and Tanakh, and publishes books in a Tanakh journal uh, called and, Megadim. Megadim, which is where this article, this mm-hmm. thesis, was originally uh, uh, yeah. for, you know published. And and I think that's been a really important. And in America, people like, uh, like with Carmi, I'd say, would be part of that that uh, sure. that group, and, and and others as well. So it's I think an you know an exciting time for um, like Orthodox Bible scholarship and in this way
0: yeah and 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 look in israel they're also beginning to ask questions that in america the orthodox community isn't in terms of like integrating because also i think with bar ilan you have an integration between this community of bible scholars and the academy that you have kind of a bridge that doesn't really exist in america and so they're starting like brandis and like that Mm -hmm. crew is starting to even ask questions about um and there's a there's a book out you read it right you gave a dress about this um about kind of bridging bible scholarship and this kind of way of reading the torah mm-hmm. in many ways we kind of lag behind israel in this kind of scholarship and uh we'll see what happens in america and that. i
1: think there's a it comes in israel there's a lot of just from the even just being in like the land where the Tanakh happened i mm-hmm. think that sort of helps uh you know gives light to certain understandings and and i think Raises the importance of, I think, certain narratives and stories and so the geography, et cetera, that all, you know, so you can sort of get that in a way that's much more immediate than it's possible here. I think it also fuels it.
0: Right, well, you can go to a place and you can understand, like, I don't know, like, you know, the fight between David and Goliath like, much better when you're literally standing there and being like, okay, so David was up there and mm-hmm. Saul was up there and, right, like, right, they right. were having this conversation over there and, like, the Philistines were over here and then they like, oh, you know, mm-hmm. whatever. Like, that just adds in a whole new dimension to your ability to understand Tanakh. So certainly, like, the return to Eretz Yisrael has been a big motivating for us from sure, this.
1: Sure, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, that actually, Ramban, when he, he wrote his, finished his commentary on the Torah in Eretz Yisrael, he, mm-hmm. after the disputation of Barcelona 1263. He had to flee for his life, and he ended up in Eretz Israel, where he, I think he rewrote a certain of his, Kai's kind of like, oh, like, this actually doesn't make sense anymore. Like, now that I see where all these places are, this, this you know, and he made a few changes, I think. As I, I don't remember what ones in particular, but uh, sort of a known thing about the Ramban.
0: So anyway, it's something to carry with you as we uh, read Parshat Vayigash this week. For the last, I don't know, 68 days or so, <laughs> give or take, uh, give or take. I guess when you're reading, when you're listening to this podcast, it'll be 70. Um, it, uh, we've been learning Masachet Nida in dafiyomi and you might have thought that given that Nida is an area of Halachas still observed today, um, that all of Masachet Nida would be like very, very kind of practical. But in truth, we've kind of only gotten to the practical stuff in the last chapter of Masachet Nida um, relatively recently. So there
1: are two reasons for that. Uh, I think the first is that most of Masachet Nida really is fits in the context of Tuma Vatara, the Torah's vast system of purity regulations, which really are about access to the temple and access to temple foods, sacred foods, Truma, Kachim, and the like. And um, and that's just not a part of Judaism that we practice right now. And so that's probably, I don't know, like two-thirds at least of the Masechet is really, really mostly relevant for that reality. And so that that takes off chapters and chapters from, from really practical considerations for the most part. Um, and the other reason is that what uh, we call nida is really uh, maybe a misnomer.
0: Right. Um, so the Torah lays out two different kinds of blood that women can give off that give them types of impurity. So one of those is nida, one of those is Menstrual blood, and one of those is Ziva, and it's maybe some kind of like gonorrhea or something like that, like something that's considered kind of like more diseasey than than Nida, and the rules about them are actually really different. Um, Nida is seven days. Total And at the end of those seven days, you, um, I mean, there's not even mikvah in the Torah, but, you, but it's read in by the rabbis to be a Torah-level requirement for nida. Um, and
1: so seven days from beginning to end. So she starts dead, bleeding, right? counts blood. seven days, and she could bleed all seven days. She could bleed three of those days, but after seven days after she begins, she goes to the mikvah, and then it's done. And That's then it's the done. nida diraita. And, right. then this- and then
0: there's zava, which is the gonorrhea thing, um, and that involves seeing blood on a number of consecutive days so she sees blood on one day or two days she's called a little zava, a zava Kitana, a minor minor zava <laughs> a lesser zava lesser zava yeah that's probably better um and if she sees it on three consecutive days then she's a zava godola that's a i don't know a major zava a, um, a big zava um and then after zava that with a capital z yeah <laughs> capital z zava, capital yeah anyways um and then after that um that's when you kind of have the and she has the purification process that's more familiar to people who keep Nida today, um, which is um, seven clean days, and then
1: following the cessation, following she the cessation she determines the she verifies that she stopped bleeding, and then she counts seven blood-free days, and then she goes to the mikvah. And so there's a shift that the Talmud tells us about in the name of Rabbi Zera, that the Note Yisrael, the Jewish women, decided that the reason is not mentioned explicitly in the Gemara that they would treat all vaginal bleeding as though it were this more stringent. Um, Zava status of the Torah
0: Someone I was at a meal recently and there, so there was like Mustard on the table And someone was like Does mustard appear In the Talmud And I was like Abundantly yes <laughs> <laughs> <was> like, <laughs> The, the, <sharp> the Talmud's The Talmud's language Is Tibat dam kechardal Even a, an amount of blood Like a mustard seed They would They would take it To be a sign That they are A major zava. Uh, that
1: waits The bleeding till The flow stops Verify the flow has stopped Through an internal examination Then count seven Blood free days With additional examination Then go to the mikvah just, we should clarify, this mustard seed, that was only a flow of a mustard seed, not yes. a... um not
0: a stain not of a Not a stain. stain
1: of a mustard seed would not be a problem. We should just sort of... Uh,
0: yes. Right. So that, I mean, just from what you're hearing, if you're not familiar with heroniza at all, we're throwing around, like, a lot of terms, Um, and you can come to the class that I'm teaching in, I don't know, a few weeks about things you didn't learn in day school and should have, and we'll do kind of a major overview of even what this whole process looks like um, for people who don't themselves observe it or don't yet observe it or are men um, or whatever, (laughs) and uh, we'll we'll, we'll at least get to to some of the basics of this because it's actually, I mean, it's really a a truly kind of amazing thing that there's this very complex area of halacha that we're sort of like, oh yes, in the month before your marriage, mm-hmm. like you will learn this and master it, and then observe it forever, <laughs> um, which is crazy. But but when you when you learn it in in the Gemara, it's like because there's this added um, purity impurity valence, um, which we don't really bring to any other area of our lives. Like that's part of what adds to the complexity of the whole of the whole system. There have been some other exciting pieces of kind of practical. Um nida halacha that have appeared in the DAF recently, so not just the um the coming together of Nida and Ziva um which in and of itself is kind of a very interesting um historical phenomenon uh the scholar by the way who works on that is named Professor charlotta von Robert um uh, she's uh, a professor at Stanford, and if you're interested in like the historical milieu in which that would have made a lot of sense. You can check out her work on Also either.
1: also Shai Sekunda, who right, Shai is Shai actually Secunda. I think his book is being published like this, any minute. Any minute, uh, maybe, yeah. by the time this is, yeah, uh, <laughs> about Hilkhanida in the context of... Um, the
0: Sassanian Empire and Persia and Zoroastrianism. Who
1: had very, very strict and extensive Nita regulations. And we
0: actually, what's what's amazing about the Talmud Bavli is that um, you actually, the rabbis get questions from this Persian queen named Ifro-Hormes, who, who kind of tests them and decides that, like, oh yes, they really know what they're talking about. <laughs> um, there's one time where she sends them, like, a thing with louse blood on it, and a rabbi Rabbi sends her back a louse comb.
2: She's
0: Ooh. like, "Wow." <laughs> <laughs> um, so there's, I mean, the right, Masaka Nida in general is full of these kind of amazing stories about about women and gentile women also who are coming to the rabbis with their questions. Just
1: tells it's really like different context for observing these laws in a culture where everyone observed similar rules that were even stricter than ours in many ways. Mm-hmm. And you know, we think of this; as, it's very countercultural for us, and in, in many ways and really distinctively Jewish and distinctively like the most obscure area of Jewish observance for even but even amongst Jews like it's pretty I uh, do have a Muslim
0: know. friend observant Muslims have some version of this interesting and um when before I got married she was like IUD strongly recommended because
1: it. <laughs> <laughs> it stops menstruation for yeah. the. You, yeah, okay. that's funny. Uh, for what it works for the, for that's for some it causes right, long term spotting, which would be a disaster. Right, well, that's that. why
0: we we avoid uh, copper IUDs in general. I'll obviously, consult your physician. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I, I think Professor Sekunda's research has just in terms just to circle back to Rabbi Zera's statement that the Jewish women were strict on themselves. That that makes. More sense in a context where, like, all the women and men, you know, everyone was observing this in a very, very strict way that you would feel like unhygienic or, or, or religiously um,
0: not serious, not
1: serious, yeah, if, if you're, if you're, you know, not being super, super careful. And so, in that context, it does make sense that uh, Jewish women would, like, just let's play it safe and let's treat all vaginal bleeding as though it were this the Torah's more severe case of Zava and that way we don't have to worry and right. it's less risky and, and we're like you know competing for piety and hygiene etc with our uh, Zoroastrian neighbors.
0: And that's not the only place where observance of Jewish law gets influenced by like the cultural milieu right? So we talked about this Um, with hair covering, for example, that in a time and place where, like, nobody goes outside without their heads covered, men or women, then this whole business of, like, oh, like, do I have to wear my keep outside? Do I not? Like, what, what, do I cover my hair just for davening? Do I cover my hair always? How much hair? Where? Like, you don't have such... In interesting um, halachic literature about this stuff, until relatively in the scheme of Jews keeping Torah mitzvot, recently because everyone did it because you, if you don't wash your hair that often, then you don't want to like keep it uncovered because it'll get really schmutzy or whatever, um, and um, and that was just the norm, um, and so. It, it, so it affects it affects like the way Jews live halakha and feel about halacha and and all of that. And, and and today when it's kind of the opposite, like then then you have to decide like I'm gonna be countercultural.
1: Right. I think the mitzvah can say the same, but but the you assign them, some of them are very countercultural and some of them are very non-category, you know, pro right. whatever, right. consistent with this random culture, and, and, and the collection of mitzvot in each category may shift back and forth uh, over time. Let's circle back to Chatzitzah that you just were about to mention. Oh, right. Yeah.
0: So, so in this last um, chapter of Nida, where we've been finding all of this like super relevant stuff finally, as opposed to like, I was squishing grapes in the vineyard, and, <laughs> um, and I'm wondering now whether I need to burn the grapes. Um, <laughs> a little bit less relevant, though I guess if that happens, talk to us. Um, so anyways, now we've gotten... To this more kind of relevant material, there's been all sorts of things. So we have um, two major concepts in terms of preparation for mikvah. So they're called, they sound very similar, but they're different, called hafifa and chatzitza. So we'll start with chatzitza. Chatzitza are the uh, things that come between your body and the mikvah water. So we have this very beautiful idea that there shouldn't be anything that comes in between your body and the mikvah water and your whole body needs to be under the water all at one time. Um, you know, we bring like tourists to the mikvah sometime of like, just like, I don't know, Hebrew school kids or whatever. And Lolly's like, it's not a very big swimming pool. And I'm like, yes, but it's a very big bathtub.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So so let's let's go through the rules for what is a chatzitzah. The Torah-level chatzitzah that would, you know, um, invalidate an immersion is if... Most of the body is covered by something that the person is mockbeat about, meaning the person is um, cares about it, cares about, yes, yeah, they' even a particular about, right? Meaning, I don't want like to have most of my body covered with mud, okay? And that I have dried mud on my body, that would be invalidated, invalidated immersion, midiorita from a Torah level.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, importantly, you don't get to decide what you care about and what you don't care about. That is not a personal decision. Um, and that's what makes these rules a little bit complicated and why, if there's something that needs to be on your body when you're going to the mikvah, you should um, probably ask a question about it. Is that It's not like, oh, I got to say to myself, well, I'm just coming from the Dead Sea and my whole body is covered in mud, but I love having the mud on, on me, so yes. it's totally fine. Yeah. <laughs> that It's not about you. It's about like people in the world, kind of, so, broadly speaking. Uh, well,
1: yeah, so let, let's, let's just move on. The next next level would be something which you don't want but covers a minority of your body. That's Durban, and that's rabbinic restriction. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then... The talent- or, or
0: the opposite it covers the majority of your body but you do want it and most people would want it that's also a rabbinic correct
1: right and then the third level which the Talmud explicitly says is not a problem is something that covers a minority of your body and you want it there and here it gets a little tricky because there is a especially in Ashkenaz, a strong tradition to even remove those types of chatzitzot that cover a minority of your body with something that you want. So, an
0: example, a simple example of that would be nail polish.
1: Right, covers a minority of your body, and you want it there. Let's say it's a brand new, you got to met your right before your wedding, you get your nails done really fancy, and then you go to the mikveh uh, that day, right right from the manicure. So, they're perfect, pristine, you want them there, uh, and it's a minority of your body. So, there's a strong Ashkenazi practice not to do it that way. Uh, and some mikvehot will enforce that, uh, but Actually, it's explicit in the Talmud. that is not a problem that doesn't invalidate the immersion not in a terror level not in a rabbinic level um that, that's that's totally a valid valid immersion so some some tricky cases uh would be uh i, I guess as you a just lot alluded, of
0: medical cases are yeah. tricky, meaning like stitches are tricky.
1: Because you want them there, um, Mm -hmm. and they need to stay, let's say... uh,
0: And anyone in your situation, meaning, like, I, uh, who don't need stitches right now, do not want stitches in my hand, let's say, by anyone in your situation who yesterday sliced your hand open with a knife would want stitches. Right.
1: The Thomas example is, like, I think women who work in the printing industry, right, Mm -hmm. with lots of ink, like, for them, it's a mark of pride to have... Inky hands. Inky hands, right? Yeah, exactly. And that's
0: what makes it complicated, right? It's all
1: class, but it's not not me as an individual. Right. I I, I like being dirty, whatever, like, like, you know, but no, it's not... not that it's about a whole category that can be defined of women who work in the printing business who for them it's like a mark of pride to have inky hands and exactly. as, as it, or women with stitches who want their stitches there or if a, or there's
0: also like um dental appliances that are right. like permanent so like at what point does something become part of your body that's also like an interesting yeah, yeah. question that um Cause right, like stitches, well, like okay, well, how long are they gonna be on for? Right? That's it's actually like a quite complicated area of halakha. But let's say you have a permanent retainer. That's like a very common thing, right? Um, so you you have a permanent retainer that's gonna be on your body from now until meaning you don't want it to ever fall off. So that's like a, a straightforward example of something that becomes like a basically integrated into your body the same way that if you, you know, God forbid you broke your arm and you had a steel plate put in. No one would tell you like, yes, you have to take the steel plate out to go to the club. <laughs> <Like, laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, my, yeah. My
0: favorite example, by the way, just uh, while we're talking about Chatzitzas, so there's a discussion in the Gemara about a, uh, a woman who is converting while pregnant, um, does the fetus then need a new conversion when it comes out? And I believe that I don't know what we do practically, but I believe the Talmud then says the fetus is fine because it, it's although it has a khatit uh, has uterus a and... of like the mom. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, it wants it to be there. Anyone in the fetuses situation would want <laughs>
1: Very good
0: would want to be still in in the uterus and therefore it has like successfully immersed um,
1: okay so good knock I mean a test case would be what about a full term fetus you know, yeah where
0: the mom's like get it out yeah. but the fetus still wants to be there yeah, I, think so. I think we
1: generally frown upon conversion you know during active labor but uh, that's <laughs> um, that would be a test case to that, to that theory it's a uh, test
0: case for mikvah hygiene also <laughs> yeah yeah you know, we, we don't do that
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> it would be, there's like water births are all the rage these days it's very different, very different. <laughs> Anyway, so chatsito—they're some of the most kind of pressing questions because. Um, and and you get really all just to throw out some other cases. Woman where forgets to remove
1: her contact lenses before going to the mikvah. That's okay like, hey, mm-hmm. right. There's you some know.
0: kinds of birth control that you take in and out. Um, if you leave though if you leave that in, um, or like um, I mean again back to the medical stuff. But let's say you're uh, God forbid having chemo and you have ports in. Um, that's a very that's another one of these like challenging situations. But
1: casts also could be mm-hmm.
0: comes... casts. Yeah, though nowadays waterproof casts. That's like a new thing. That so you then, can then you just go in with it. Then go right. Yeah. And usually. Water gets in, but then you kind of it gets yucky underneath. So you have yeah. to figure out how to, you know, dry that out after you go to the mikvah. Um, yeah, I mean, all sorts of all sorts of medical things. I mean, sometimes you even have like like an interesting question that people are divided over is. Um, uh, shoot, what's it called when your hair is like, not just in, in bra- oh, dreadlocks, dreadlocks, because right that you are part of hafifa, which is the other word I introduced before and never got around to explaining, um, which is preparing for the mikvah such that you will have no yeah. <laughs>
2: Um,
0: So that's a requirement to wash your hair or to, to shower or to check your whole body. It's a little complicated what the precise requirement of hafifa is, but um, but so let's say you have dreadlocks, so you want them there, but they cover all of your hair. Possibly hair is, uh, by the way, categorized like separately from the rest of your body in terms of these halachot. and you can't. And so one of the things you, you can't, have to be combed, do, they
1: can't be combed out, can't, can't be can't combed out, them. right?
0: Exactly, mm-hmm. it can't be combed out, and it's literally knots. Um, so then, what is the status of of dreadlocks when it's like knots that you want there? But usually, even people like me, meaning women with curly hair surprise, I have curly hair, um, are, uh, nowadays the, the, like, the thing, you, like, don't brush your hair when you have curly hair. You, like, wash your hair, you condition it, um, you, you like, I only brush my hair to go to the mikvah, and the reason is because we're really strict knots in hair, get, and the Gemara says, oh, a knot with one hair versus a knot with, like, two hairs, but, Tacks, knots in your hair, because um, you never inspect your knots that closely, um, are one of the things that you need to get out before getting into the mikvah, so that the mikvah water can get to every piece of every hair. And so when you have dreadlocks and your hair is permanently and purposefully and knots, that's like a really another really complicated um, application of these of these halachot. And um, and in general, like we try not to tell people like in your life you cannot da, 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 because then you won't be able to go to the mikvah, but. Dreadlocks are are uh, a challenging test piece for that, I would say. Uh, So, anyways, it's been really fun to kind of finally get to the practical pieces of Hilchot Nida found in Masachet Nida. And um, again, on Sunday we're gathering to start the next Masachet, which is Brachot, which is. Full, full, full of practical things, and hopefully in the future podcast, especially the first half. <laughs> yes. Well, even the last last half gets sub yikorenein um, to to a food brachot. So that I mean that's pretty relevant, especially if you love caper right. bushes. I think the, the dream um, section might be less. Uh... Oh, the dream section, yes, yes, and the, and the ghost section and the third parak—that's good stuff too. It's oh,
1: a great mishnah. It'll be a lot of fun. Yeah, it'll, yeah. It'll, it's, it's all
0: fun. Brachot's amazing. Um, it's strongly recommended. It's the first uh, the first thing I ever learned in daf Um and not with the cycle. Um, so join us Sunday morning. Even even if you're, you know, just for one day, you want to be holding in Daffy come on Sunday, you'll, you'll be up to date. <laughs> come on Sunday, but please do RSVP so we you know to get enough food for everyone who plans to come. That can be found on the Entree website. And if you want to join me in a si'um and a completion celebration, along with three other members of our Shawl in Masachet Nida, um, that will be at Tudash Sheet this Shabbat, which we're very excited about. So come join us for that too. So we're here with our very own Gabai Dr. Josh erlich Wanted to welcome you to Sunsky Studios. Thank you very much. Um so what what is being a Gabai like at Antrishal? Uh
2: well, I being a Gabai at Shalm is very rewarding. I have enjoyed my time uh It's been and,
0: a long time already, right?
2: I, yeah, I honestly I can't remember when I started officially. I I've been <laughs> I've been coming to uh uh, shul for quite a while i've been coming ever since uh sarah moved into the uh the neighborhood <laughs> Uh, on and off while we were uh engaged and then when we first married then I came regularly. But I, I really became Gabi, I think just through the process of coming to Daily Minion mm-hmm. and coming on a regular basis. Uh, the more you show up, the more responsibility you get. So <laughs> <laughs> I've been coming a lot. So.
0: <laughs> and what are some of your your gab-eye? what are the what are the highlights? What are the lowlights? What are the pet peeves?
2: Oh the well the big highlight is uh Being forced to introduce myself to everyone in shul that I see. Uh, Mm. And do
0: you tell them nice teeth?
2: Oh, of course. (laughs) Of course. That's the first thing I notice. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I I do enjoy meeting new people, being forced to meet new people, I should say, because I'm I'm pretty much an introvert. Mm. And uh, I think if it weren't for this position, I... I would not meet as many people as I, as I do now. So I'm, I'm thankful for that. Um, and I, I enjoy being a part of the shul, I, or I should say being a part of the service. I like participating in whatever I can do. and I, I, That's uh, one thing that I always tell people is you do what you can and mm-hmm. you should do what you can because that's a big part in coming to shul is uh, being, being an active participant.
0: So, when people say "No, I don't want to cover uh no, that's don't fine want well i, I
2: don't want to impose on anyone because i I never know what uh the reason why you know maybe uh maybe they really physically can't maybe they um intellectually can't uh um maybe they're just not in the right frame of mind so mm-hmm. no no big deal, no problem. thanks for coming, and uh hope you enjoy your time.
0: Do you find days where the Gaba'ut is tough? Like uh, this past Shabbos, we took out three Sifrit Torah or Zimchat Torah or, or like the high holidays. Do you find that like fun and exhilarating or exhausting?
1: Uh,
2: no, it's never exhausting. I think I uh, I mentally prepare and it's almost like uh, people that are into sports, they, they kind of psych themselves up. Uh, I, I got myself uh, all ready. I, I had a big cup of coffee in the morning. I, <laughs> I, I got I got pumped up and uh, it kind of... Need to know what things are going, and I try to think uh, like a chess game. Like, what's the next step? What do we need to do to keep things moving? And uh, uh, it helps when uh, the rabbi uh, hands me the uh, the luach and says did you remember to do this? I'm like, yes, yes, Yay. I did. So I'm, I'm all ready. <laughs>
0: that's fantastic. And one of my favorite things I remember, um, visiting Auntie Shisholm, like before I ever even considered working here and noticing, um, Noah's involvement and in, like setting oh, yeah. up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No,
2: that's, a, that's a, another big reason why I, I do what I do is, uh, my kids, I think, are a uh, big participant, and they, they enjoy participating and, and helping out, and I think they take pride in the fact that they know what should be done next and identifying um, what parts of the service we do, what we don't do, what they should look out for. So I, I do want to set a good example for them, and that's that's another reason why. Why I do what I do
0: amazing, yeah. so let's talk a little bit about your life outside of the the gabinet uh-huh. yeah. <laughs> so no. I made a joke about teeth before, yeah. uh, that's because you're a dentist mm-hmm. yep um and where is your practice in the in the neighborhood yeah
2: yeah uh i I opened my office in two thousand and eight on uh Sheffield it's south of Belmont uh it's in the neighborhood i uh I've always wanted to work and live in the same area relatively. I, I had, uh, dreams of just being able to walk to work and I can thankfully, um, being the neighborhood dentist, uh, being able to come in when I need to, um, and have it be convenient for work and life balance. So that's, that's really a big part of why I'm a dentist too, is because I realized that it was, a um, besides just being able to make a living, uh, it's a good lifestyle. I can take off when I need to. I can, uh, uh, set the hours the way I need to for uh, work and life and uh, religious responsibilities. So it's a it's a good thing. It's all good.
0: And I know I know your family feels like uh, Lakeview is a kind of forever home for you. Um mm-hmm. yep. uh, Do you want to talk about how you all came to that decision?
2: Uh, I think it was the shul, honestly. Uh, that was that's always been a big topic of conversation with uh, when we were considering, you know, where to. Uh, buy a house. What uh, what's affordable? What's not affordable? Schools, um, way of life, ability to live in a certain area. And the Jewish life is a, a very big part of our life. So when we were considering um, what's available to us, I think Anshe Shalom was the number one pull for us. Not so much uh, jobs, because really, I could have worked anywhere. I could have opened my office anywhere. Sarah could have found a job anywhere mm-hmm. um there are other day schools in the city thankfully um but really it was it was the shul and we feel strongly connected to the shul so that's another reason why we we do as much as we do
0: amazing um normally we ask people well if someone wanted to like find you on shabbat morning where would they find you but I i'll
2: think... probably i'll probably find you oh, so, <laughs> <laughs> it's like it's like a speeding trap uh, <laughs> i i've seen you before you see me <laughs>
0: so anyways if you uh if you ever you know have a family um somehow you want to celebrate or you're excited to celebrate Josh is the person to find if you were looking to get an alia or open the ro yeah don't don't, don't don't be shy
2: don't be shy i i want people to come up and say uh, hey can i do this can i do that and i will say yes other <laughs> people might uh have other issues but i will say yes <laughs> amazing thank you so much yeah. for coming in this All morning right. thank you
0: Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of The Straw Hat. Thank you, as always, to our producer, Haley Leventhal, for all of the hard work she puts into making this podcast happen. If you have positive feedback on the podcast, we'd love to hear that in person, by voice note, by email. You can give us great readings on wherever you listen to podcasts. All of that would be very much appreciated. If you have negative feedback, you can send it, like Joseph, to Egypt for 20 years. Thank you so much for listening. Have a wonderful day.